Hello and welcome back to the future of figure skating. I'm Anna Keller and today I'm joined by figure skater and author Andrew J. Sass. Andrew's first middle grade novel, Anna on the Edge, features a 12-year-old non-binary figure skater coming to terms with her identity and what it means for her ambitions in the sport. It's a sweet and compelling story, and I think figure skating fans of any age will enjoy it as much as I did. Andrew is himself a non-binary adult skater and a judge, as well as the author of three novels for middle school age readers. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his husband and, quote, two cats who act like dogs. So, Andrew, welcome to the future of figure skating. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Anna. Thanks for having me. So I loved Anna on the edge. My skating partner gave it to me as a present because she said, I can't believe like, what is the chances that there is a book about a non-binary figure skater to begin with, much less that they share your name, which is not quite the same spelling or pronunciation, but close enough. (laughs) And I loved the book, even though Anna is much younger and a much better figure skater than me, I still felt like there was so much that I could identify with in the story. Thank you. Yeah, I I mean, I thought I was the only non-binary skater when I wrote the book, and I'm so glad to have been proven wrong because it's allowed me to meet so many wonderful people, including you. So how did you get involved in skating? And I know that you're currently a skater as an adult. So what's your story been? Well, skating has been part of my life for almost my entire life. I was introduced to it back when I was a kid. This is going to date me a little bit, but my parents used to take me to ice capades um, as shows back when we lived in Nebraska in the late 80s. And I just love the spectacle of it. It's like all the lights and the glittery costumes and the group numbers and stuff. So we moved from Nebraska to Rochester, Minnesota when I was about seven. And a couple months into that move, my mom took me to an ice show that was run by the local figure skating club, Rochester FSC. And again, I was enchanted. And that time I told my parents that I wanted to actually learn how to do that. So they signed me up for learn to skate lessons. And aside from a couple little hiatuses here or there, I've been skating ever since. I feel really lucky that I got to start skating in Rochester because at the time in the early 90s, they had a lot of great skaters. They probably still do, but I'm remembering specifically like Damon Allen was there when I was there and kind of a random fact, but I was, my family lived across the street from Gregor Filipowski who represented Poland in then I believe the 1994 Olympics. So I don't know if Gregor actually knew me. I highly doubt it since I was seven years old and completely starstruck. But I know he lived across the street and it was just kind of an inspiration to see these really elite level skaters as I'm trying to learn how to do forward stroking and backward wiggles and stuff like that. That's so cool. It's kind of a neat little backstory. Um, My family moved a ton though when we were growing up, so we didn't stay in Rochester too, too long. Uh, But the one thing that was kind of a constant in my life was skating. So I spent my middle school years in Georgia, uh, Atlanta metro area and skated there. And then we moved back up to Minnesota to the Twin Cities area during high school, kept skating. And throughout that time too, I, as a teenager, I kind of funded my training through teaching learn to skate classes and coaching myself. And that kind of followed me from there through college and grad school as well. It seems like it's a relatively unusual story in some ways that people who start skating when they're a kid continue through without having like a significant break. It's I feel like more commonly I hear people say after 10 years away, then I came back to it as an adult. But that's great that you were able to um, continue all the way through. Yeah. And I think part of the reason was because I was 
I don't think I was the most talented of skaters. And I know a lot of skaters at the time would finish their senior moves in free when they were done with high school, they'd be done completely. Uh, back then, I think you had to be 25 or older to be an adult skater. So there was kind of a gap between finishing high school and getting to compete as an adult. And I don't think adult skating was quite as robust a program as it is now either. But for me, I was not through all my tests by the time I finished high school. So I was kind of determined to keep going with it, which is why I stayed within the sport. And then when I turned 21, they actually lowered the age limit for adult competitions down to 21. So it was a nice bridge for me. What is your skating like now? It's not as consistent as I'd like it to be, I suppose I could say. Um, I didn't ever take a full break from skating, but there was about a, an eight year period where I just wasn't skating with any kind of goal in mind. And that changed a couple of years ago when I started working with a coach who discovered I hadn't finished my junior and senior free skate tests. I was in my early thirties at the time. And he said, well, that's a goal. And we started working toward that. So for a while I was skating six days a week and training to take these tests. And after I passed them, I sort of took a little bit of a step back because financially it's very expensive to skate that much. And also I had a full-time job and I wanted to try writing um, a little bit too. So, so there was a bit of a step back, but right now I'm, I'm skating consistently one day a week and trying to get on the ice more. And I'm, I'm mostly focusing on ice dance right now. I have passed my first gold pattern partner dance, the quick step a couple of weeks ago. So I'm hoping I can continue that and keep taking my gold tests and then beyond that, I'm also a member of my figure skating club's uh, board, and I'm also a U.S. figure skating official. I usually judge test sessions. Well, and congratulations on your test. Thank you. <laughs> Those pattern dances and the way that ice dance kind of keeps giving you another goal after the goal that you accomplish is kind of a, a cool thing. Yeah, it keeps you on the ice. And when your knees get a little too creaky to do jumping as much as you used to, it's kind of a fun way to stay involved with the sport still. So for probably the majority of the folks listening to the podcast who have not read or encountered Anna on the Edge, will you give a little synopsis or non-spoiler summary of the book? Sure. So um, Anna on the Edge is a middle grade novel that follows 12-year-old Anna Jin, who is the reigning U.S. juvenile national champion in the girls division. And the novel starts with Anna having just come off fresh from her win at nationals, and she's really excited about the next season that's coming up. She's going to be moving up a level from juvenile to intermediate and following her coach to a new rank. And for the first time ever, she's going to have a fancy choreographer to create her programs for the intermediate level. The only problem is this choreographer has a very specific idea of what Anna should skate to, and she wants her to perform to a princess theme program for her free skate. And this brings up a lot of uncomfortable feelings for Anna that makes her realize that she doesn't know if she identifies as a girl. And then to complicate matters further, Hayden, who's a transgender boy at the rink that Anna has just started skating at, mistakes Anna for a boy, and Anna ends up not correcting him initially. So suddenly she's kind of juggling these two very different identities on one sheet of ice. And ultimately, when she realizes that she's non-binary, she needs to kind of decide whether she's going to keep this quiet or come out to her friends and family and potentially risk years of training and financial sacrifice from her mom. Thanks. One of the things that struck me so much reading the story was how 
grounded it is in skating and in the reality of what it's like in um, being in a rank training, being in that environment. And there are so many skating books out there for kids that are wildly divergent from anything in reality that as a skater, I really appreciated that. But I think that anyone who is encountering that would also, you know, notice that grounding in real experience. You want to write a middle reader story and have a protagonist at this age rather than someone who was, you know, an older teenager or an adult. So I've got kind of two responses to this. And one was simply because of the skating levels and the age limitations on them. I, I wanted a story where the, the kid was moving from one program to two programs and literally the only level in figure skating where that happens is between juvenile and intermediate. So I couldn't really have someone who's 18 doing that, who was also nationally competitive. So there's that reason. And then the other is because at the time when I was thinking about writing a story about a non-binary figure skater, I had just rediscovered middle grade literature, which I honestly hadn't read since I was in middle school myself. I was under the mistaken assumption that you can't write queer characters in the middle grade space because of gatekeepers. And I was having this conversation with another writer friend who's like, that isn't actually true anymore. You should read all these books. And they gave me a list. And off the top of my head, I think the first ones I read were Starcrossed by Barbara D, which is about a girl who gets a crush on another girl. And Melissa by Alex Gina, which is about a transgender girl who is figuring out how to come out to her friends and family. And I was just so enchanted by how these authors portray queer experience at this age, because it's an age that I feel like people are trying to figure out their place in the world. You're trying to figure out who you are and how you fit into your friends groups and your family. And you're basically defining an identity for yourself. And it maybe will change over time, but at least for me, that was the point in my life where I was really trying to figure out who I was and express that to other people. So after I'd read some of the books um, that I kind of consider my mentor texts, it just felt like the perfect space to set a novel. And I just also remember when I was 12 at the rink, the rink was my life when I was 12. So I figured it would be really fun to kind of revisit that time too. How much of your own experience as a non-binary figure skater do you feel like is reflected in the story or what things did you intentionally change or want to approach from a different angle? Sure. So some of the surface level details in the book are, are very much related to who I am like the San Francisco location. I grew up, like I mentioned, in the Midwest and the South, but San Francisco was basically what I called home for about 15 years. And I really wanted to be able to illustrate Bay Area culture in the rink through a story like this. I also kind of wanted to give a nod to synchronized skating. I didn't mention it in my very long explanation of my skating history, but I've also been part of a synchronized skating team as an adult, a master's level team in Oakland. So Anna's best friend Tamar is actually part of a synchro team. So I got to slip in some references. And one of the programs that Tamar's team skates to, La La Land was one that my team skated to. It's kind of Easter eggs that you wouldn't know unless you knew me, but they're there. And then Anna's coach, Alex, is a queer man who's married to another man. And that has been my experience too, is I've had multiple queer coaches that I've viewed as role models throughout my tenure as a skater. And that was kind of included as a result of that. When it came to things that I wanted to intentionally make different, one of them was just, I, I wanted to explore self-discovery through more of a modern lens, which I think this makes me kind of sound like a dinosaur a little bit, I have to say modern lens, like I'm a historical figure, but the reality is just that skating has changed so much since I was a kid. And 
the, the rules change every year, honestly, but an example of this would be when I was a kid, uh, there was a rule that said that if you were going to compete in the ladies or the girls division, you had to wear a skirt or a dress. And I believe that rule got dropped in 2004, which is almost when I was out of college. So it was very much my experience to kind of be forced to wear this if I wanted to compete, but it's not the experience of the readers who are going to be reading today. So I wasn't sure if it was going to be as relevant to them. And another example is the, the competitive pipeline ended up changing. Like I mentioned that Anna won juvenile nationals and figure skater insiders know there is no juvenile nationals anymore. Initially, when I wrote the book, there still was. So Anna's initial goal was to try to win intermediate nationals or at least qualify for it. But after the book got bought, they changed the whole system and there was no longer an intermediate or novice and juvenile nationals. So I sat on it and was just like, oh, crap, basically, like, what do I do here? Because 12 year old me would like call out any author who wrote something that wasn't realistic. And I just thought not all of my readers will be as attuned to the nuances of figure skating as I am. But for those kids who are reading it, who knew the rules, I didn't want them to kind of side eye the book. So I spoke to my editor about it and she had said, you know, well, you can keep it the same. I mean, fiction is fiction for a reason. It doesn't have to mirror real life precisely, but for my former self and for anyone who was would be like me, I wanted to get that changed. So I was able to incorporate the National Development Camp into the plot and have Anna try to qualify for that. And also the NQS, the National Qualifying Series of Competitions. Uh, there's a competition in the summer that Anna competes at with the hope of getting a high enough score that she could skip regionals and save her mom some money. So all of that kind of diverged from my experiences as a kid, but felt very authentic to me to write, even though they weren't personally my experiences. Absolutely. Did you talk to any of the kids at the rink who were at that age as part of your writing process? I didn't, but I often overheard their conversations, like when they were putting her skates on and stuff and just hearing, especially from, I'm not from the Bay Area originally, but just listening to the way that they talk, they use the word hecka a lot, um, which is just, it's vernacular from out here. And that is not what we used in the Midwest, but I was like, I'm putting that in and just seeing their different skates. I didn't, I don't think Adia was a thing when I was a kid, but now everyone has Adia skates. Getting to see how they experienced the sport and how it was different from I, what I experienced as a kid was kind of enlightening throughout the process too. So Anna experiences social dysphoria that's brought on by some of the gendered expectations you talked about with um, becoming an intermediate skater and with a new choreographer. And that's something that really struck me. And I think you even included a note in the book about defining that. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about social dysphoria, even though it's something that a lot of people, I think even a lot of cis people could identify with if they understood that. So could you talk a little bit about that part of Anna's experience and what social dysphoria means? Yes. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the term dysphoria at all, it's kind of an umbrella term for physical body and social dysphoria. And it's essentially a, an emotional condition where someone feels distress or disconnect with the sex they were assigned at birth. So I think in terms of transgender and non-binary narratives, uh, people might be more familiar with physical or body dysphoria, where you feel an, a disconnect or discomfort with an aspect of your body. 
But when it comes to social dysphoria, on the other hand, um, it's a discomfort that's linked to social situations and the assumptions people make about your gender as a result of them. To give some examples of what social dysphoria is, it could be a name that is traditionally associated with male or female, and you might be uncomfortable with the assumptions people make because of your name. Um, it's the bathrooms you choose to enter when there's no gender neutral option. It's the clothes you wear. You know, if you're wearing a skirt, people automatically think you're a girl, and that's not necessarily true. I want to note, too, that just dysphoria in general is very individual to a person. If you're trans or non-binary, it doesn't necessarily mean you have dysphoria, or it doesn't mean you have both forms of dysphoria. Uh, we're a very much a wide spectrum when it comes to experiences. But with Anna, it's specifically centered around this princess theme program that she's performing to and the dress, the costume that she is given as a result of it and how it makes her feel uncomfortable with the assumptions people are going to make when she performs it. Even honestly, reading the book and reading some of Anna's experiences, those were the things that really resonated with me and I think actually helped me to come to a better um, understanding and terminology of some of what I was dealing with at the time. As somebody who part of the reason it it took me a long time to understand myself as non-binary and it took me until I was 29. Same here. <laughs> Almost exactly the same age. I think part of like why it took me so long was that I didn't necessarily experience body dysphoria, but only over time did I start to realize that being referred to and assumed to be a woman in different circumstances, just it didn't necessarily feel wrong, but it didn't feel right either. And so over time, trying to think, well, what would feel better started to become more of an option is something I started thinking about as I met more non-binary people in skating. That's something I think a lot about because if the system in order to compete in singles definitely you know, requires you to choose to either compete in the men's or the women's division, if you're going to do, you know, a standard freestyle program and having to identify in those ways, I go through a lot of my daily life without really necessarily having to choose to do very gendered things. But that was one of the places where I encountered it and it helped me, you know, re reflect on my own gender. So it was very interesting for me seeing this and realizing oh, actually this, you know, coming of age narrative and a sort of identity discovery for a 12 year old was also something that I could identify with. I think I was 30 when I was reading it, but feeling like so much of that experience was relevant to my life too. And I think too, it's just when we were growing up, we didn't have this vocabulary to really describe our feelings like they do now. And I, I think it's really wonderful that we have such a breadth of labels that we can use if we want to, we don't always have to. And if we realize they don't fit us quite right, we can always pick another one later on. I mean, we are constantly evolving. I, you mentioned my author's note, and I mentioned in that, that initially, because I'd never heard the term non-binary, I thought it was a transgender man. And that was in part why I wrote Anna the way I did, where Anna hasn't made a decision about what pronouns are best for her yet. She's still using she, her, but maybe it'll change in the future because I think at that age or at any age, it's just, it's, it's okay to not know for sure. And it's okay to try different things on and just see what feels the most authentic and right to you at a given time. Yeah, I think that that's really powerful that it's not a binary, this is who I was now, this is who I am. It's a process of discovery and making choices and trying things on and that that doesn't have to be a, a lightning bolt moment. Yeah, one and done. 
Another aspect of the plot that was interesting was that you really talk quite a bit about the financial stress that skating puts on Anna's family, that she has a single mom who's really working extra hours to support her skating. And I'm definitely struck by how elite skaters in a lot of ways have to grow up faster than other kids in terms of having some responsibility and being put into some adult situations, you know, maybe in other ways they don't mature as fast, but this is something that Anna is dealing with some adult worries about money. Why did you want to include that part in the story? Well, as you can probably guess, I was not an elite skater myself growing up, but I like to consider myself elite adjacent because I, I watched a lot of skaters, whether it was in Rochester with Damon Allen and Gregor Filipowski or later on. Um, I used to train at the same rink as Alyssa Liu. I, I saw how much sacrifice a lot of the parents and the families had to do. I believe Gregor had to move away from his family to live with his coach when he was younger to make that decision to to move to a different and better training facility for him. And I, I didn't want to ignore that aspect because I think for a lot of elite athletes, it's this decision uh, with the parents between letting your kid blossom and see where they can go, where their potential can take them and kind of balancing how you can afford this uh, with your family situation, because some families can just automatically afford it, but a lot of them can't. And at Anna's level too, I don't think she's quite at the point where she would be eligible for grants and, or maybe possibly having won a national title, maybe a few grants, but she's at that stage where she's not quite to the point where she's receiving too much funding from federations or anything like that. So there is a lot of sacrifice that has to be made. And then particularly because I set this in San Francisco, I didn't want to ignore the fact that San Francisco is a very high cost of living part of the U.S. and with a single family and a single form of income. This would all be things that are putting pressure on this young child on top of just trying to perform and enjoy the sport. So I wanted to weave that through the story to kind of give a nod to the families that are making sacrifices like that and kind of say, I see you. And it was one of those things when I was growing up where I didn't often see that written, especially in books that were aimed at middle schoolers that talked about high level athletes. Uh, it just didn't usually come up. And that always struck me as odd because there were always conversations in my family about how much my monthly skating bills were costing me. It's another part of that transitional period of growing up when you start to be aware of things like that and you're still a kid and it's not your responsibility, but it's also something that you're aware of and you start to feel like your choices are impacting your family. And so there's that part of growing up. Yeah, it puts a lot of pressure on people to perform well, I guess, too, which is kind of woven into this narrative and a reason that Anna doesn't actually come out to her mom earlier is just because she just spent $4,000 on choreography and another couple thousand on a costume. And there's just this underlying thread of tension about, I don't want my mom's sacrifices to have been wasted just because I'm not comfortable with something like this, that at the time she, Anna didn't really fully understand why she was uncomfortable with it. I really love how hopeful the story is in so many ways and that, you know, not to spoil everything, but that Anna gets a lot of support along the way with understanding her identity and figuring out how it's going to impact her skating. I also can't help but think that as she gets older and moves into other levels of competition, this is going to continue to be a real struggle with some of the institutional barriers and cultural norms that there are in skating. What would you like to see institutions like skating clubs or federations or individual judges and 
people working in the sport do to make skating be more accessible for trans and non-binary people? Well, I think it was not so long ago that in Canada, they announced that they're opening up pairs and ice dance to two people of any gender, uh, at least in domestic competitions. I would love to see that spread to other countries. I, I think especially when it comes to partnered skating, I feel like, especially in the U.S., it's very difficult sometimes to find a male partner. And Timothy LeDuc with pairs has also kind of opened up this un understanding and realization that you can be a queer athlete, a non-binary athlete in the highest level of the sports. So I'm, I'm really hoping that there's kind of an embrace of this in other countries because it would allow more people access to the sport, especially with partnered divisions. I know some people struggle to find dance partners to actually take their tests with and sometimes have to travel and then practice with a partner for a week and then take the test really fast. Um, so I'd love to see that. I'd love to see more inclusive language when it comes to competitions and uh, club announcements, things like that. One thing that drew me to synchro skating as an adult was that the flyer for the additions said that all genders were welcome. I've seen a lot of uh, language about both genders. And for me as a non-binary person, that doesn't necessarily signal to me that I'm going to be welcome. So I would just love to see more thought around language like that. And then also to listen to diversity, inclusion, and equity initiatives that surround conversations um, about trans and non-binary athletes. I believe Timothy LeDuc is part of one that actually is working with U.S. figure skating to make sure that the language surrounding trans athletes is inclusive and not problematic. And I know I've had a conversation before with Elliot Halverson as part of U.S. Figure Skating's Pride Month on Instagram, where we talked about being a non-binary athlete within the sport. So I'm hoping those conversations continue and that people take note of them because I would love to see the sport open to more people. I mean, skating, we always hear this refrain that skating is for everyone. And I truly believe it is. It's just, we need to get the language there to make kids feel like it's truly accessible to them. And it, it means everyone includes them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, you mentioned Timothy's story. So, you know, I'm an adult para skater and as a non-binary person and as a lifting partner, my skating partner is a cis woman and we are currently not allowed to compete because even though you would look, okay, so as we identify, it's the same one non-binary, one woman, but because Timothy was grandfathered into the rules of having started skating um, with a M next to their name and I started skating with an F next to my name and I'm not fully going to transition and be right. um, skating as a man, we're not allowed to compete. And so it's, it's very clear, even when looking at those things, looking at the transgender policy, for example, that U.S. figure skating has, that they haven't given a lot of thought to how non-binary people fit into it. And hopefully, like you said, that is changing. And I've, I've been told that there are processes happening somewhere and it's a little opaque to me where in the process that is been happening, but same, hopefully. And one thing that I really loved hearing from Canada, I had, um, I had Tina Chen on the podcast a few months ago, who is leading um, a lot of the work that their equity, diversity, and inclusion committee is doing. And she was saying that she was recently signing up to volunteer for a competition and their form had pronouns on it and said, what division are you competing in? 
what gender do you identify as and what pronouns do you use as three different fields? And I think given that we have this you know, gender division in the sport, there can still be room to allow people to make a little space between your competing in the women's division does not necessarily mean you are a woman, same for the men's division and be able to like, that's definitely a process of education to get people to, yes. to get that concept, but there's no reason why we couldn't have forms that reflected. Right. For sure. I hope that comes up. I hope they are listening. I, I should mentioned too, that a lot of my experiences relate to the fact that I transitioned more along a traditional binary path um, toward male. So a lot of my experiences within the sport have been smoothed over as a result of being read as male too. What you bring up is like a really good point with people who maybe aren't comfortable or are not financially able to change legally their gender on all their forms. There might be more barriers to be able to compete and participate in the sport than there was with me. There's also the situation that applies to many trans women of like whether they are then going to have to make some medical yes. proof of testosterone levels or those things. And again, this is something where I really appreciate what Canada has done is that their policy is just self-identify what gender do you identify as? That's what gender you are in our system and that they're not asking for anything additional to that. It's very different than how um, the ISU and most um, Olympic level sports have things framed. And I'm hoping more countries will adopt that because I feel like the more countries that kind of adopt that approach, the more the ISU will at some point have to address it when we end up with an elite team that wants to go to the Olympics or to Worlds or something like that. One other thing that I'm really interested in that you are doing is being a judge. I'd love to know more about how you got into that and what your experience judging has been like. Yeah. So the first time I started thinking about becoming a judge was right around the time that I took my senior free skate test. So not that long ago, a couple of years, early thirties, and my club had mentioned that they were struggling to find dance judges or the number of dance judges that they needed to be able to hold higher level dance test sessions basically and get their kids passed. We, the club that I was skating at at the time is located in Vacaville, which is, if you know your Northern California geography, it's about halfway between San Francisco and Sacramento. So there were judges in the Bay Area and the Sacramento area, but it was sometimes difficult to get them into our, our rink that was in between. Mm -hmm. So I started trial judging with the attempt to become a dance judge and also became a singles judge at that time as well. And uh, right now I'm currently a, a gold singles judge and uh, a bronze ice dance judge. The way trialing works is you usually pre-pandemic, you had to go to test sessions and pretend to be a judge basically. And if your notes aligned, your notes and your scores aligned with what the judge's ultimate decision was, then it was kind of like a notch in your favor. And you had to do a certain number of those before you could submit and they'd evaluate you and then you take a written test to get your appointment. But the tricky thing is if there aren't enough dance judges in the area to hold the test, it's very difficult to trial them. So that's why I ended up getting a little bit ahead of singles with dance. And I'm hopefully I've heard some rumblings that they are going to start offering an option to trial judge virtually, because now virtual testing is a thing that I believe has opened up a lot of abilities for people who maybe can't 
get to a test session or can't afford test session fees, it's a little bit more affordable to do virtual testing. So hopefully we'll be able to get virtual trial judging set up and then maybe I'll get some more appointments. But yeah, that's how it started. That's cool. And it always seems like from the outside, um, you know, being a judge must just be this like, you know, heady amount of power, though I think probably in reality, you're, it's a lot of <laughs> judging tests that are probably fairly repetitive, but um have you enjoyed doing it? Yeah. So I am autistic. So I actually like things that are repetitive. That's just kind of some, my comfort zone, my comfort space. Um, but it's also really helped me empathize with these skaters too, because I, I think the reason it took me so long to take all my tests too, is because I, I really struggled with performance anxiety at in-person test sessions. I just, I could do the tests on practice sessions with the moment these three individuals just looked up from their forms and were like, all right, go ahead. I would just freak out and, and I would make really ridiculous mistakes. So now that I'm on the other side of the penalty box, I see that with a lot of kids and a lot of the kids pre-pandemic saw me skating on freestyle sessions and probably falling a bunch. So I'm in my head, I'm hoping I'm less scary as a result because they've seen me on my rear end. Um, and I just, I hope a mm -hmm. lot of skaters realize too, that I've never met a judge that has wanted to fail a skater. I mean, we go out there and we are hoping that you put out a test we can pass. So, yeah, that's really cool. And it it is nice when the judges do feel like they're also part of the community and not these scary figures that are mysteriously off over there. And well, and one thing I didn't realize as a kid, too, is that adults are volunteers. U.S. figure skating officials are all volunteers. You're, the people at your competitions, the tech callers, the referees, they're all volunteering your time to be able to make sure that kids and adults get to skate at these competitions and participate. And that's something that I don't know if it makes it less scary when you're out there competing, but hopefully the competitors know that we want to be there and we're doing this because we're really passionate about the sport and we want people to enjoy it as much as we love it. Yeah, that's great. So you've written at least one, maybe two other books since Anna on the Edge was published. I'm curious what you're working on now. And if you want to give a plug for some of your other uh, writing, that would be great. Yes. Yeah, so Anna on the Edge was my debut novel. It came out deep in the pandemic in late October of 2020. And since then, I've published a handful of other things. I, in 2021, I was part of two anthology projects. Uh, one was called This Is Our Rainbow, 16 Stories of Her, Him, Them, and Us, which was co-edited by Nicola Mellaby and Catherine Locke. It is the first of its kind, to my knowledge, all LGBTQIA plus stories um, in an anthology that is focused on middle school readers. And the other anthology I was part of is called Allies, Real Talk About Showing Up, Screwing Up, and trying again. And that was co-edited by Dana Allison Levy and Shakira Bourne. And Allies is YA focused, so a little bit older readership target demographic, mostly uh, high schoolers and above. And these are all nonfiction essays that relate to allyship, being a good ally, needing an ally, what a good ally looks like. So my essay in there was related to a year in the life early on in my transition and the people who really helped me embrace my identity back then. And then I had a second standalone novel, a middle grade contemporary called Ellen Outside the Lines that came out about a year ago, which was about an autistic 13 year old who is trying to reconnect with her best friend on a school trip to Barcelona, Spain during the summer between seventh and eighth grade. And I have a book coming out really soon, um, another middle grade contemporary called Camp Quilt Bag, which is coming out 
on March 21st. And what's unique about that book is I actually co-wrote it with another author, Nicole Mellaby, who was part of the This Is Our Rainbow anthology. We took our two characters from our respective stories in there and found a way to put them together in this new story that's coming out. And it's set at a summer camp for queer youth in the Minnesota Northwoods. And my character is non-binary. Nicole's is a lesbian. And we got the opportunity to write a lot of different queer identities within this, this story because it's an all queer cast. And later this fall, I think the paperback of Ellen Outside the Lines is coming out. And the exciting part of that is because they usually, the paperback versions usually include a sneak peek of your next book. And I have a book coming out in 2024 called Just Shy of Ordinary. So that one will have probably a chapter or two sneak preview in there that I'm excited to share with readers. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's, it's great. You've been quite prolific over the last couple of years. I always like to wrap up the podcast by asking if there's anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to bring up. And in particular, the big concept of this podcast is how to make skating more inclusive and healthier. That's a giant question, but if there are aspects of that, your own experience or what you've seen that you would want to touch on, that this is your opportunity. I'm still kind of thinking about the question when you asked about social dysphoria and the assumptions people make based on like external appearances or your name um, or the places that you choose to enter like bathrooms. And I guess if I could say anything to people who are part of the sport or who are fans of the sport, try not to make assumptions about people based on things, let them tell you who they are when they're ready to do so. And if you make a mistake, it's completely fine. You just apologize and just correct yourself going forward. It's also really helpful to have allies. So if you know someone uses different pronouns than what they're being referred to as by other people, you can also speak out. You don't need to make it a big thing, but just say, hey, just FYI, and just let them know. I think the more we show up for one another, the more inclusive and safe the sports feels for everyone. And I think that gets us even closer to really, truly having a sport that is for everyone. Figure skating is supposed to be for everyone. So just try to show up for people. Thank you. That is great words of wisdom for us to close on. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andrew Sass. You can look at the show notes for the transcript and links to many of the things we discussed. You can follow him at Matoka, that's M-A-T-O-K-A-H on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. You can also find out more information about his books at sassinsf.com. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. Remember to subscribe to the future of figure skating on whatever platform you use and share it with your friends.